Hey, everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. This is the fifth session in our series exploring Tolkien's Middle-earth. Tonight, we delve deep below the Misty Mountains, and Bilbo finds a piece of discarded jewelry, probably of no consequence. It's probably going to be fine, you guys. I can't imagine that this insignificant magical ring is going to have any enduring consequence whatsoever, right? We'll get to all of that in due course. As ever, you can ask your questions, you can make your comments, you can offer your thoughts in a number of different ways. You can use the YouTube chat window if you're watching live. That chat window appears on the right-hand side of your video. Unless, I guess, you're watching in some strange browser on some strange system and it appears elsewhere. If it appears elsewhere, do let me know in the YouTube chat. I'm keeping an eye on that right now. Or you can get in touch on Twitter using the hashtag back again, which I will see as we're live. I have it open here. Or if you're listening after the fact, you can uh, tweet using that hashtag and I will keep up with it through the week. You can also get in touch over on the StoryWonk forum after the fact. You can email me after the fact. You can use, if you are supporting StoryWonk on Patreon, like the fine folks that you are, then you can use our Discord software, which also runs a live chat room right here. I can see Jean and Julie and Lorna and Sabrina and Kate and Nicole all in the Discord chat tonight. And Brandon too. Excellent. You guys are all here. It's fantastic. And there's a little conversation about weather, appropriately enough, in the YouTube chat right now, because half this country is shrouded in snow. Here in Oklahoma City, I have to tell you the hardship of it being a little chilly today. It was a little chilly. You guys. I had to put on a coat. I'm just indulging myself because I just moved from New York. So I'm glad to be away from the snow. I will miss it come the winter again, I'm sure. But right now, it's pretty good. So tonight, we are delving deep into Chapter 5 of The Hobbit, Riddles in the Dark, which is arguably, I think, the chapter in The Hobbit. This is the most important thing from certain perspectives that will happen within the pages of this book. When people talk about The Hobbit, this is the chapter that they discuss. It certainly gave us one of the most memorable scenes in the entire movie adaptation, in the entire, I don't know, nine-hour trilogy that The Hobbit was transformed into. This still, for me, is not just one of the most effective and powerful scenes, but one of the truest pieces of adaptation that Peter Jackson has ever done in his entire movie-making, particularly Tolkien-related movie-making history. Before we get to the reading, though, I have a little thing to pick up from last week because I received a fantastic email from listener Luke, who urged me to do a quick compare and contrast on two different pieces of poetry. And I have to say that in a lifetime of reading Tolkien, I had never thought to contrast these two things. But once you do... I think there are some interesting inferences to be drawn. So I am going to put up this slide. I'm going to read you these two poems, and then we're going to do, as I say, a little quick compare and contrast between the dwarf song, Crack the Plates, and the goblin song, Clap, Snap, the Black Crack. So as those of you who have been with us for the last few weeks probably remember, and those of you who have read The Hobbit separately probably remember, when the dwarves are invited to tea, when they arrive at the unexpected party in the first chapter of the book, they sing this song to, in effect, taunt Bilbo. Chip the glasses and crack the plates, blunt the knives and bend the forks. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates. Smash the bottles and burn the corks. Cut the cloth and tread on the fat. Pour the milk on the pantry floor. Leave the bones on the bedroom mat. Splash the wine on every door. Dump the crocks in a boiling bowl. Pound them up with a thumping pole. And when you've finished, if any are whole, send them down the hall to roll. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates. So carefully, carefully with the plates. And of course, the narrator assures us after the song is done, 
that the dwarves did no such thing, that they actually tidied in a swift and expedient fashion, that they took care of Bilbo's home, that they were, in fact, good house guests. All the same, though, the meter and the rhythm and the focus and the energy of the dwarven song does feel a little familiar when contrasted with the goblin song. This is the song that the goblins sing, crucially not while they are kidnapping Bilbo and the dwarves, but after they have kidnapped Bilbo and the dwarves. This is as they are traveling through the tunnels below the Misty Mountains. Clap, snap, the black, crack, grip, grab, pinch, nab, and down, down to Goblin Town you go, my lad. Clash, crash, crust, smash, hammer and tongs, knocker and gongs, pound, pound for underground, ho, ho, my lad. Swish, smack, whip, crack, batter and beat, yammer and bleat, work, work, nor dare to shirk, while goblins quaff and goblins laugh, round and round for underground, below, my lad. If nothing else, this is a sizable proportion, a sizable fraction of all of the exclamation points that Tolkien will use in the entire book. Between these two poems, we must account for 15, 17, 18% of all the exclamation points in the book. There is here a similar energy. Now, obviously, the poems themselves are different, but I guess they prompt two questions. To what degree are there similarities between the dwarves of Middle-earth and the goblins of Middle-earth? And... To what degree are we led to perceive similarities between the dwarves and the goblins? To what degree are they actually like each other? And to what degree are we supposed to believe that they are like each other? Well, of course, their poetry is not the only thing that connects them, if indeed it can be said that their poetry connects them. They are culturally rather similar. They live in underground communities, predominantly, if not exclusively, male communities underground. They live in actually similar spaces. The goblins, we are told, have co-opted the mines of Moria, a dwarven stronghold. We've seen interactions, long-standing interactions between the dwarves and the goblins. They are both, as we've learned in, in chapter four there, um, they are both craftsmen. They are artificers. They are creators of things, of mechanical things. So what is the difference fundamentally between dwarven culture and goblin culture. Can we point to a singular difference? Well, I think there are a couple that we can point to. The first lies in the nature of the work that the dwarves do versus the nature of the work that the goblins do. It is, of course, observable. It is, of course, uh, a ready contrast to observe that the goblins create weapons of mass destruction, that the goblins create indiscriminate weapons. While the dwarves create weapons and armor, they are objects of beauty in and of themselves. They are functional, yes, but not merely functional. There is a sense in which the, the, the works of goblin craft are brutally functional, that they have no concession made to aesthetics, no sense of artistry or art about them. They are what they are in function and purpose and no more than that. So the dwarves inhabit a higher space. And of course, within the frame of Middle-earth, within the frame of Tolkien's writing, the creating of art and beauty, the, the nurturing of beauty is one of the highest callings to which one can be called. It is one of the most important things that we can do. The cultivation and preservation and creation of beauty 
is something that separates the great and the good from the less so. So in this instance, as we saw in the Misty Mountains Cold song, the dwarves are creating things of enormous beauty and are, at least in the first instance, sharing them generously. There is an outpouring from the Lonely Mountain. The things that the goblins create are passed down, in, excuse me, the things that the dwarves create are passed down into the hands of other dwarves, but also into the hands of men and elves and presumably, if they lived a little closer, hobbits too. That changes over the life of the kingdom of Erebor, certainly by the time that Smaug strikes, and we'll have the opportunity to talk about this much, much later in the book when we get a better sense of that timeline. But by the time that Smaug strikes the Lonely Mountain, it seems as though the dwarves have turned inward, that they have become insular. There are references made to that in the Misty Mountain's Cold Song. But all the same, the dwarves are creating art. They are creating beauty. They are creating things that have more about them than simply their mechanical function, whereas the goblins don't. There is, I think, one other subtle inference that we might draw here, which can be found in the penultimate line, that extended penultimate, uh, I guess, both the, the penultimate and the antepenultimate line there in that, that uh, goblin poem. Batter and beat, yammer and bleat, work, work, nor dare to shirk, while goblins quaff and goblins laugh, round and round, far underground, below my lad. Uh, quaff and laugh there is an imperfect half rhyme to my modern ears, but there certainly are uh, there certainly are accents that you can have which will make that rhyme work perfectly. But what's most important there is that when we think of the dwarves, we think of when hammers fell like ringing bells. We think of this enormous bustle of craft and of industry within the Lonely Mountain. Now, the goblins build, they create in a crudely mechanical sense, but they also, it seems to me, are lazy. They are commanding slaves, which to the best of our understanding is not something that the dwarves have done. The dwarves work for the joy of working, even when they're out in the country beyond Erebor, even when they're trying to scratch a living. Yes, it's, it's a mean and dispiriting thing to be a village blacksmith, but it is still work. They are still doing the thing that they are called to do. So for me, those are the distinctions between dwarven and goblin culture, though I have to tell you, with this thought now lodged in my mind, I cannot wait until we get to the Fellowship of the Ring, until we're talking about the Mines of Moria, because I think there are going to be some really interesting contrasts that we can pull out there. I should also say, too, um, I had some emails this week uh, just seeking clarity on something about the goblins in, in uh, The Hobbit. The goblins and the orcs within Tolkien's original fictional frame, within the pages of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, goblins and orcs are the same, completely the same, completely interchangeable. There is no distinction whatsoever. Goblin is the fairy tale word that is used. Orc is an older, more more muscular, more mechanical kind of, kind of Anglo-Saxon kind of word, which is exactly the kind of word that Tolkien would have loved. Goblin has that fairy tale sense to it. And this is absolutely clear in the text. There are beats, not so much in The Hobbit. I don't think there's a mention made of orcs, in fact, in The Hobbit, unless one is slipping my mind. But certainly by the time we get to The Lord of the Rings, we see ample evidence that orcs and goblins are one and the same. Even the legendary Urukai are described as goblin soldiers at one point. So it is clear that these things are the same, even, even well, well, get to talking about goblins in the Lord of the Rings when we get to talking about goblins in the Lord of the Rings. Excellent. Yes, absolutely one and the same. What you'll see is 
I think oftentimes it is easy to be somewhat dismissive of the derivative works that have flowed forth from Tolkien. Uh, none more, none more powerfully so, I would argue, than Dungeons and Dragons, which has in many ways taken the tropes of Tolkien and codified them into modern high fantasy. And one of the things that was distilled out of Tolkien was that distinction, that functional distinction between goblins on the one hand and orcs on the other. That is significant because it's not a simple misunderstanding. It's not a trivial misreading of the text. It actually speaks to the tonal differentiation that is evident in the pages of The Hobbit versus The Lord of the Rings. Goblins and orcs, technically speaking, within the Legendarium are the same, but the goblins in The Hobbit are not the same as the orcs in The Lord of the Rings in many functional ways, in many observable ways. Though even then I would stress that the orcs in The Lord of the Rings are not what you may believe them to be. If you're coming to the Lord of the Rings newer, if you're coming to the Lord of the Rings out of the movies, you may have a different sense of, of what orcs are exactly. But yes, functionally within the Legendarium, absolutely one and the same. And we can go deeper into that. I know that this is perhaps the third of the five sessions that we've done so far here on There and Back Again, when I have mentioned doing a brief Silmarillion synopsis on the story of Aule and Yavanna, specifically Aule's creation of the dwarves, which is my single favorite story in the Silmarillion. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. I would like to get into that and maybe do a brief lecture looking at Aule's creation of the dwarves, the way that the dwarves were brought forth from the stone. They are not natural, quote unquote, whatever natural means in this context, in the way that the elves or men or ultimately hobbits are. Dwarves are something else entirely. It would be really interesting to look at them and then look at the competing stories on the origins of the orcs too. So if there's interest in that, then let me know. Hit me up on Twitter and I will see if I can carve out the time to make that happen. Yes. Oh, Kim asks, maybe it depends whether it's men that speak of them, whether they are called orcs or goblins. There is a little differentiation there, though that is all but set aside completely by the time we get to the end of The Hobbit, by the time we get to the Battle of Five Armies. And then it's, it's incomplete when we get to uh, The Lord of the Rings too. But yes, there does seem to be a kind of bias, depending on which side of the Misty Mountains you're from, effectively, whether you refer to them as goblins or orcs. Good. Um, I am absolutely never going to catch up with YouTube tonight. You guys are being incredibly prolific. This is wonderful. I'm so glad to have you all here. Um, okay. Oh, Jeremy asks, what about the children of Huron? Um, I mean, yes, yes. I, I would love to do all of Tolkien. I would love to do everything from, from, from Unfinished Tales down to Leaf by Niggle. I would love to do all of Tolkien, and maybe someday we will. If they're in back again, proves popular. If you guys really enjoy it, still enjoy it by the time we're done with Return of the King, then maybe we will look at the Silmarillion. I think there's, there's so much depth that we can explore there together. And I think that in, in particular, this kind of collaborative reading, and I've been particularly moved and, and startled and, and inspired by the conversation that's been unfolding over on the Storywonk forum. That's forum.storywonk.com. Just great conversations spilling forth from these live sessions, which is exactly what I want to happen. I think that this kind of collaborative reading environment would serve the Silmarillion extremely well. I would absolutely love to do that. So some fine day, I'm sure we'll get to it. But right now we must keep ourselves focused on The Hobbit because this is, this is a big chapter. Um, it's not a long chapter, terribly, but it is both important and dense. And it comes laden, or alternately illuminated, by a really interesting manuscript history. The story of Chapter 5 of The Hobbit, both within and without the book itself, is 
fascinating. So we're going to get to that right now, but we're going to begin, unusually, by jumping into a slide. I will thank Luke, though. Thank you, Luke, for getting in touch about dwarves versus goblins. That is fascinating. We will return to that in the future, I promise. Let's get to our first slide, because this is really where the story this week begins. Very slowly, he got up and groped about on all fours till he touched the wall of the tunnel. But neither up nor down it could he find anything. Nothing at all. No sign of goblins, no sign of dwarves. His head was swimming, and he was far from certain even of the direction they had been going in when he had his fall. He guessed as well as he could, and crawled along for a good way, till suddenly his hand met what felt like a tiny ring of cold metal lying on the floor of the tunnel. It was a turning point in his career, but he did not know it. He put the ring in his pocket almost without thinking. Certainly it did not seem of any particular use at the moment. He did not go much further, but sat down on the cold floor and gave himself up to complete miserableness for a long while. He thought of himself frying bacon and eggs in his own kitchen at home, for he could feel inside it was high time for some meal or other, but that only made him miserabler. This is the finding of the ring. And whether you are reading The Hobbit for the first time or the 50th time, whether you have read The Lord of the Rings 50 times or have yet to read The Lord of the Rings, I think it is impossible for you to be here with me this evening or listening to this podcast after the fact and not know about the ring, not know this artifact that has just been discovered by Bilbo. We're going to look specifically at this passage in just a moment, but first we have to frame this. When Tolkien published The Hobbit in 1937, the ring that Bilbo finds in this passage is just a magic ring. It is one of dozens or hundreds or thousands scattered across the world. It turns the bearer invisible, which is super cool, but it is in every other way completely unexceptional. Bilbo encounters Gollum then beneath the Misty Mountains. The two engage in the riddle game, but that version of Gollum, the version of Gollum that is present in the original version of The Hobbit in 1937 is very different from the version of Gollum that you just read while you were doing the reading for this week's session. For one thing, he chooses to wager his magic ring in the riddle game. For another, he and Bilbo part ways in civil fashion. Gollum is very different. After the success of The Hobbit, though, and The Hobbit was a huge and sudden success, Tolkien began to work on the sequel at the request of his publishers. This book would eventually become The Lord of the Rings, though it wasn't always shaping up to be The Lord of the Rings. In order to make the sequel work, Tolkien needed an element from The Hobbit that was more than it seemed. He needed something that would connect forward into a grander adventure. And he finally settled upon The Ring, this plain and simple fairy tale magic invisibility ring. But making the ring work in the context of The Lord of the Rings rendered The Hobbit completely silly and unbelievable. So in 1950, Tolkien submitted a revised version of The Hobbit to his publishers, including a number of spelling corrections and miscellaneous edits. He changed a comma here to a semicolon. He capitalized things that hadn't previously been capitalized. Oh, 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 and did I mention... He included a completely revised fifth chapter, including a much darker and more vicious version of Gollum. That was published in 1951. Fellowship of the Ring would be published in 1954. It is fair to say that even in the pages of The Hobbit, as you read The Hobbit today, we are seeing a Lord of the Rings era Gollum. Not just meaner, 
not just more under the influence of the ring, but more pitiable, more wretched. It's a remarkable piece of, of literary construction here. It is a genuinely breathtaking retcon. What makes the story so awesome, in fact, let me move on to the next slide. We'll come back to this one in just a moment. I want to show you an example of, of exactly what it was that Tolkien did, because Tolkien would not change a word unless he absolutely had to. The first paragraph here is an example taken from the original 1937 Hobbit, the second example here is the same passage as it was published in 1951 in the sixth edition and all subsequent editions, of course. This is, of course, Gollum's dialogue. So originally, Gollum said this. Does it guess easy? It must have a competition with us, my precious. If precious asks and it doesn't answer, we eats it, my precious. If it asks us and we doesn't answer, we gives it a present, Gollum. That's the 1937 version. We gives it a present Gollum. Gollum, of course, being that idiosyncratic throat-clearing sound. There's this half-choking sound that, that Gollum makes that, that gives him his name. So if Bilbo fails to answer the question, Gollum will eat him. But if Bilbo asks a question that Gollum fails to answer, Gollum will give Bilbo a present. And in the context of this chapter, he means the magic ring. He is absolutely going to give Bilbo the ring, and he is distraught when he discovers that he has, in fact, lost the ring and can't make good on the wager. This is a very different, much more fairy tale version of Gollum. Then, almost 20 years pass, Tolkien rewrites chapter five, but he preserves almost everything. The changes that are made are, by and large, extremely subtle, but extremely powerful. This is the revised version. Does it guess easy? It must have a competition with us, my precious. If precious asks and it doesn't answer, we eats it, my precious. If it asks us and we doesn't answer, then we does what it wants, eh? We shows it the way out, yes. You'll note no mention of the ring, no mention of a gift. And also, Gollum has taken a darker turn. Then we does what it wants, eh? We shows it the way out. Yes. The cruelty and malevolence of that line, I think, is evident. What makes this story, let me cancel this slide, what makes this story all the more compelling and all the more mind-blowing, if you are in any way interested in the history of stories. And as I've said before, Tolkien had a very medievalist approach to stories. He didn't believe that stories should be fixed. He didn't believe that stories should be singular. He believed that stories should be told and retold, that they should take on that weight of ages, that they should have this, this halo of, of narrative variation and perspective surrounding them, that that was one of the things that gave stories mythic power. So when he goes back to adjust chapter five, to bring the Hobbit into line with what will turn into the Lord of the Rings, he changes Gollum, he changes the ring, he does a few things, it's fine. And he could just have said, the Hobbit, second edition, now 15% cooler. But he didn't. Instead, within the frame of the text, we are told that the first edition of The Hobbit contains the story that Bilbo tells the dwarves right after he escapes from the Misty Mountains at the end of this chapter. Minor spoilers, I guess. Hey, you guys, Bilbo's going to be reunited with the dwarves next week. So Bilbo escapes the Misty Mountains 
and tells the dwarves about the adventure he just had with Gollum. Gollum, he lives under the mountain. He's kind of weird. He's kind of strange. He did threaten to eat me, but he also said that if I bested him in a riddle game, he would give me a present. And then he showed me the way out and waved cheerfully farewell as I wandered off into the wide blue yonder. That, of course, is not true within the fictional frame. At the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo and Gandalf will make reference to that version of the story. They will look back on Bilbo's first account of what happened under the Misty Mountains and will say, oh yes, that's the story that he told the dwarves. The story that came along thereafter was more honest. So this, we are led to believe, the version that we have in The Hobbit today is the version of the story that actually happened. Perhaps. Because I guess we can never really be sure what happened to Bilbo beneath the Misty Mountains. I just adore the way that Tolkien approaches the retcons. And I will include two in the, um, in the uh, show notes which accompany this podcast. I won't have them available, obviously, as you're listening live. But after the fact, you'll be able to download the podcast and contained in the show notes, there will be a link to uh, ringgame.net who have created this absolutely comprehensive breakdown of every single textual change between the original edition of The Hobbit and the 1951 sixth edition and those editions that came thereafter, they have indexed every single change within the fifth chapter. So you can go and actually see the evolution of the work. We're going to take one more look at differences between the original version and the, the revised version right at the end of tonight's session. But for right now, it's, it's just fascinating. Yes. Yes, uh, I'm seeing... Chesley Smith here in the YouTube chat is calling out death of the author in all caps. Uh, apparently there has been some discussion of Tolkien. Oh, and Pottermore. Yes, yes, good. Here's the thing about Tolkien and death of the author. And I certainly got into this a little bit last week when I was talking about the, the quasi-metaphorical nature of the stone giants in the Misty Mountains. Are they a metaphor? Are they real? What do we think? And a few people fairly, I think, called me out for saying, well, your interpretation is not based on the text. Your interpretation is based on other works contained outside of this book. And that is completely valid criticism. If you want to tell me that within the pages of The Hobbit, the stone giants are actual literal giants, I, I might still disagree with you just based on how that passage is written. But, but that is at least a valid interpretation. And there's nothing specifically uh, counteracting that, that assertion. But... Tolkien stands apart a little from, from any other writer in the English language. The care and the diligence that went into the creation of his secondary word, world, the, the conscious crafting of, of the smallest and most incidental detail, does kind of apply a negative pressure against death of the author. I certainly would never restrict anyone from wildly interpreting Tolkien's work in whatever way they see fit. If it is based on the text, if it is evident there on the page in front of you, then go nuts. By all means, indulge death of the author. But for me, death of the author is perhaps less applicable to Tolkien than it is any other writer, because there's very little within Tolkien's corpus that is unintentional, that was the product of, of subconscious creativity, because almost everything was revised again and again and again. And when you had that constant process of revision coming from a storyteller who is absolutely literate, absolutely fluent in the language of stories and myths and history, then it takes on a different air and a different sense. I am less willing to discard any, any one element of Tolkien's legendarium as an indulgence of, of Tolkien's subconscious or as something that was, was 
ill-considered or ill-conceived or something that is open to misinterpretation. I am less willing to do that with Tolkien than I am with anyone else. And I, I'm well aware that I'm leaving myself open to the potential charge right now that that's because I love Tolkien. There are also authors that I love that I would treat very differently. J.K. Rowling is actually a perfect example. And Portermore, I think, is a perfect example of that. J.K. Rowling is a fantastic writer and created a wonderful secondary world that if you're looking at it analytically, if you're looking at it at painstakingly, barely hangs together in some respects. And that's fine because Harry Potter is not a world which needs to hang together in quite the way that Middle Earth does. Rowling wasn't doing what Tolkien was doing. Her strengths are very different. Her virtues are very different. I can love those books and still apply Death of the Author with, with rampant abandon without necessarily feeling hypocritical about being more reluctant to do so about the work of Tolkien. Though that is in itself speculation about Tolkien's creative process. I am, even by saying that, drawing in extra textual sources. I guess this is perhaps the exception that proves the rule. I'm not so sure about that. Good. <laughs> um, Jeremy asks, so you're saying Tolkien would approve of Pottermore. Would Tolkien approve of Pottermore? Mm. I hesitate to speak for the professor, obviously, as, as we all should. Um, I think there are a number of things that Tolkien would not approve of when it comes to Pottermore. Um, I hesitate to think what the professor would think of digital distribution. I hesitate what he would think about the preponderance of screens in our lives right now. But the ability of the writer to return to the story and to tell different versions, I think does actually, is actually compatible with his creative process. Um, there are things that J.K. Rowling has done. Um, Dumbledore is gay being a prime example that I think Tolkien would not have approved of. Because if Tolkien, if Tolkien were to allow for the possibility of Dumbledore's homosexuality, he would want there to be evidence of it in the text. I think that he would push back, I would push back certainly, against this assertion that doesn't stand contrary to anything in the text, but also isn't grounded in anything in the text, if that makes sense. I think that there is an essential difference there. Tolkien still valued the text as the primary document itself. And I am being lured off into talking about uh, into talking about J.K. Rowling again, which is a terrible thing. So I must not a terrible thing in and of itself, of course. I love J.K. Rowling. I'm going to talk about The Prisoner of Azkaban very soon, and I can't wait. But right now, we're here to talk about Tolkien. We have at least started our slides. Yes. Um, Yes. Oh, oh, Kate says here on Twitter, insofar as death of the author speaks for the idea that your work speaks for itself, I don't know that anyone is exempt. No, certainly. I think that um, the work speaking for itself is, 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 of course, of primary importance. But what do we mean by the work? Do we include within that frame all of the attendant material that comes with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. For example, if we're discussing Harry Potter, we're going to include all seven books in the Harry Potter series. Are we also going to include Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them? Are we going to include Quidditch Through the Ages? Are we going to include The Cursed Child? Well, sometimes we will and sometimes we won't, I think, depending on our approach to canonicity. Are we going to include Pottermore? Are we going to include an interview given by J.K. Rowling to the Daily Mail in 2003? Well, we might but equally we might not. The textual history of Tolkien's work is that much more complicated. Trying to decide what is canon and is not canon 
and uh, trying to decide what is and is not canon, of course, is a fruitless task in this regard, trying to attribute different weights and intensities to the discussion of canonicity within the realm of Tolkien and, and, and trying to filter his own varied persp- uh, responses and perspectives on his own stories is a more complicated task than that. But certainly at the highest level, I completely agree. I think Death of the Author is possibly the most important uh, creative skills, uh, critical skill set, excuse me, that you can develop. The idea that you can, that you must disentangle the text from the author's account of the text, that is critical reading 101. That gets you a long way down the road toward being able to apply genuine analytical acuity to this kind of, of close textual reading. So I'll, I'll be the last person to argue against death of the author. It's just a little harder with Tolkien. Yes. Um, Michael says here in the YouTube chat, I think Tolkien is special because his deliberate use of multiple narratives at the very start of The Hobbit gives him a legitimate, a legitimate avenue to make literary changes. That's absolutely true. As we've said before, this is already something of a gestalt text. This is already the combined stories of innumerable people, in fact. We distill that three different narrative voices. We distill that Bilbo's narrative voice, and then the narrator of The Hobbit, whatever that means, and then Tolkien's narrative voice too. But this has been passed down through the ages. We could speculate that there are 14 different narrators, 14 different authorial voices within the pages of The Hobbit, because that has been accounted for by the frame, by the textual frame itself. Good. All right, we must, Sarah says, I know I certainly don't include the cursed child. You are not alone there, Sarah. I know that for sure. Yes. Um, Brandon asks, which authorial voice is the most metaphorical? That's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because you'd need to distill out exactly what you mean by metaphor in this instance. If you're talking about a kind of mythic metaphor, then my sense is that Bilbo's is the most metaphorical. Bilbo is the one that is creating crafted stories. Bilbo is the one who is talking about the trolls and kind of encapsulating that troll encounter in a very in a very neat and, and tight little package in, in basically a fairy tale wrapper, and then doing so again, arguably with the goblins, arguably with, with Gollum this week. And we'll continue to do so through through the rest of the book. At least it is to my interpretation clear that those narrative impulses are coming from Bilbo, albeit after the fact. If we're talking about the actual application of of symbolic metaphor, if we're talking about the exploration of theme, then it may well be Tolkien himself, as distinct from the in-text narrator, that, that narrative voice that assures us that this is a turning point in Bilbo's career. We're going to go back to that in just a moment. Um, I would argue that he is best representative of of the theme of the book and is thus drawing forth the deeper metaphors themselves, not the literal one-to-one mythic metaphor. This is how thunderstorms feel in the mountains, for example, but a a deeper kind of of symbolism that that ripples through the book going forward. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. Thank you for that, Brandon. Okay, good. Um, Let's actually go back, I guess, before we go forward, because now that we have an understanding of the fictional frame, we need to go back and look at the discovery of the ring. And it is crucial to remember that this is, by this point, the ring of power. That in the original version, it was just a magical trinket. It was just a a magic invisibility ring. But by the time that you and I and we all are reading The Hobbit, if you have a version of The Hobbit that was published in 1951 or later, this is the Ring of Power. 
And that's of vital importance. I don't want to go too deeply into what the ring is because it actually isn't terribly relevant to the pages of The Hobbit. It is consistent now in this new edition, but it isn't relevant in exactly the same way. But we must note right from the beginning the ring's agency. The ring cannot, I guess, act itself, but it can cause action to be taken. Let's look at that passage there, running from the second, the second sentence onward. His head was swimming, and he was far from certain even of the direction they had been going in when he had his fall. He guessed as well as he could and crawled along for a good way, till suddenly his hand met what felt like a tiny ring of cold metal lying on the floor of the tunnel. It was a turning point in his career, but he did not know it. He put the ring in his pocket almost without thinking. Certainly it did not seem to be of any particular use at the moment. He did not go much further, but sat down on the cold floor and gave himself up to complete miserableness for a long while. So what happens here? Bilbo, completely lost in the darkness beneath the misty mountains, is crawling along, desperate. He doesn't know which way he's going. He doesn't know if he's going in the right direction. All he knows is that he must go onward. Then his hand finds on the floor of the tunnel the ring. It doesn't seem to be of any use, doesn't seem to be of any significance. Nonetheless, he puts the ring in his pocket, almost, we're told, without thinking. Certainly did not seem of any particular use at the moment. He did not go much further, but sat down on the cold floor and gave himself up to complete miserableness. Having discovered the ring, it seems that whatever motive force was driving Bilbo has all but abated. He ventures onward, he pushes onward through the darkness, finds the ring, and then stops. Is there a force compelling Bilbo forward to find the ring? Is the ring in some sense calling to him? Is this, on the other hand, entirely an example of eucatastrophe? Is he being driven onward by fate or by destiny or by prophecy or by grace or by luck? All of those things are possible. We will discuss the ring in more depth when we get to the Lord of the Rings. I do want to highlight, though, that line. It was a turning point in his career, but he did not know it. And the question that I have, and the question that I've seen asked here in the YouTube chat, at least, is simply this. Who wrote that line? To which of our narrative voices can that line be attributed? It was a turning point in his career, but he did not know it. Is that Tolkien, the, the publisher of The Hobbit, the, the author of The Hobbit? Is that the narrator of The Hobbit intruding upon this scene to offer us an additional frame for a much, much later perspective? Both of those things are possible, I think. Certainly, it was a turning point in his career, but he did not know it, is the kind of dramatic irony that we oftentimes associate with medieval tales, with, with moral tales, with parables and fables, and absolutely with fairy tales. It is more or less compatible with the narrative tone of this chapter as a whole. It is, though, to me, absolutely indicative of Bilbo's narrative voice. This seems to me completely true to our understanding of who Bilbo will be by the time that he composes the Red Book. By the time that he sits in Rivendell at the end of his life and writes this story, I can see that Bilbo marking that turning point with a certain wry affection, uh, a sense of loss, a sense of 
shame or of fear. We can speculate about that when we get to it. Certainly that to me feels like Bilbo. How do you guys feel about that? Does it read like Bilbo to you? Shane says, I think it's the narrator. The narrator, like the later Hobbits, is more interested in talking about Bilbo's career and adventures. That's actually a good point. Yes, the use of career is, is interesting there. That, that is an interesting call out. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Oh, interesting. Um, Robert says, practically, practically, it only makes sense that the ring was waiting for someone to come along, but in another voice, it was meant to be. Those two things, of course, not incompatible. Uh, when the Aina is sung at the creation of the universe, all things are foreseen, all things are ordered and, and meant to be in that sense. So to say that something is foretold or to say that something is meant to be does not, within the fictional frame of Tolkien's secondary world, necessarily excuses from the necessity of free will. We can still ask questions about choice there. We'll get to some of that theology when we get to the Lord of the Rings, I promise. Um, yes. Uh, let's see here. Oh, uh, Kim calls out. This is actually a very common question. I should have included this in my notes, but I didn't. Uh, she's asking, Gollum equals Gollum? Is there a, is there a connection between the, the word Gollum, the name Gollum, as we get here, and Gollum, G-O-L-E-M, from, uh, from Jewish mythology? And the answer, I think, is no. I, the answer, I think, is... I've certainly seen some arguments made in that direction, and they are not completely without merit. But this is one of these moments when I get stuck on, on shaky academic ground. This is one of these instances where I am going to cite the absence of evidence as evidence of absence. This is one of these moments where I am going to say, if he'd meant that, he would have done it better. If he'd intended that kind of literal one-to-one -one correlation, it's, it's so close that I can't believe he would have left it in that spot. I can't believe that the professor would have developed the idea this far or made it this explicit, but not gone further. And certainly it is true that there are a few instances in Tolkien's Legendarium of him creating names and, and, and uh, words uh, in his constructed languages, which are a little close to real-life terms, which are a little similar, a little familiar to us, but which apparently were completely opaque to him. For the longest time, the hero of the Lord of the Rings was going to be called Bingo Baggins. I don't think that anyone would have done that intentionally. I'm not sure that Tolkien, when looking at the word bingo, had any other association other than, well, that's consistent with the naming convention that we've established within Hobbit culture. Within the frame of Hobbit culture, bingo is actually a perfectly acceptable Hobbit name it would just look weird to us. And of course, if you go to the Silmarillion, you can find tale of Tyrion upon Tuna. Upon Tuna, you guys. Not a reference, not a borrowed word, certainly not a joke at all. He just happened to create a fictional word that was a very important fictional word that is spelled T-U-N-A and pronounced Tuna. This is what happens when you create constructed languages all the time. As Lauren says in the YouTube chat, Tolkien, too medieval for his time. And Kathleen says Bilbo isn't much better than Bingo. I think I might argue with you, Kathleen, a little. I mean, maybe not much better. Maybe we can agree much better, yes. Bilbo is perhaps not a name that a modern fantasy author would write, though it is reliably fairy tale, I think. Yeah. Okay. 
Yes, and we're asking about the ring. We're asking about ring wraiths. Yes, not everything is present here. We must, must, must push on. Bonnie asks, do we need to add, oh, that's interesting to the Alistair Seminar drinking game? You know what? If I end up saying, oh, that's interesting, often enough that it becomes a part of the drinking game, then you guys have no one to blame but yourself. <laughs> Stop being so interesting. Yes. Um... Oh, and Robert agrees. Good. So true. Tolkien was so articulate that if he meant the Jewish golem, he would have done it better. Yes, that's that's exactly the argument, which is also kind of my argument against the Stone Giants. And I'm well aware, as I said, that this is shaky academic ground. I'm well aware that that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence and so on and so forth. But that is one of the reasons that I look so skeptically on the Stone Giants is simply if they existed, they would exist more. We would see more of them. They would be more present in the text. Though certainly a few of you pulled out uh, different examples, different references uh, that that uh, perhaps cast a certain light on the giants. I'm still inclined to say that that was a metaphor, but sure. We can, we can open up discussion of that later. Good. Um, Kate asks, can we make Alistair Seminar bingo? No, but you can make Alistair Seminar Bilbo. These are the jokes, you guys. Thank you so much for being here tonight. All right, let's move on because we have so much more to discuss. Before we get to Gollum, though, we have to look at, at a minor piece of Baggins-ish luck. This is one of the lesser examples of luck, but is, because it is so incidental, one of the most easily observed instances of luck. Now, we talked last week about the schedule that the dwarves kept in the journey from the Shire to Rivendell, that had they not been delayed, had they not been almost eaten by trolls, then they would have arrived at Rivendell too early for Elrond to see the moon letters. Had they not been waylaid by the trolls, they wouldn't have found these amazing ancient elven blades from Gondolin. Their experience would have been fundamentally different. It wouldn't have been necessarily worse. But here we see a very pointed piece of luck for Bilbo right underneath the Misty Mountains. After some time, he felt for his pipe. It was not broken, and that was something. Then he felt for his pouch, and there was some tobacco in it, and that was something more. Then he felt for matches, and he could not find any at all. And that shattered his hopes completely. Just as well for him, as he agreed when he came to his senses, goodness knows what the striking of matches and the smell of tobacco would have brought on him out of dark holes in that horrible place. Still, at the moment... He felt very crushed. Now, the question is, is this luck or is this eucatastrophe? Because he is wretched. He is crushed at this moment. But grace comes in absence here. Yes, you have your pipe and that gives you hope. Yes, you have your tobacco and that gives you hope. But no matches because that would endanger you. I'm inclined to look on this more as a more run-of-the-mill variety Baggins-ish luck, Hobbit luck, if you like, than I am to look at this as an example of eucatastrophe per se, but I think there was an interpretation there. One quick note on this slide, too, because this is going to become depressingly, repetitively common as we move into the Lord of the Rings, you guys. Tolkien hated modern words. Any chance he could, he would use the oldest possible English words. He would go back as far as he could. He generally disliked using words that entered the language after 1500. And if he could go back as far as 1066, then you'd better believe that he would. Throughout The Hobbit, he uses the word tobacco. That is, by Tolkien standards, a very modern word indeed. And I think it's fair to say that it sits somewhat 
uncomfortably within this more archaic register that we see throughout The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. By the time we get to The Lord of the Rings, he has dispensed with the word tobacco, that ugly and ungainly modern word, and he has replaced it with the good, solid Anglo-Saxon compound word, pipeweed. Again, to Tolkien, pipeweed just means tobacco. He had no sense that it meant anything else. Pipeweed, despite what you may see online or despite what you may have seen in the movie adaptations of both The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, is not in any way a hallucinogen. It is not a reference to marijuana. It is just tobacco. It is just called pipeweed because of the elegance of that term versus the ungainly and ugly modern word to Tolkien, tobacco. So just a bit of clarification there as we move forward and as we inevitably get to the Hobbit movie adaptation of Radagast, which, well, sure, we'll get there when we get there. Um, let's keep going. We need to take a look at, at a very strange pivot here because we have Bilbo deep beneath the Misty Mountains. He has found the ring, but the ring, as we saw in that slide, as soon as he finds it, he puts it in his pocket and then forgets about it. It is not a lingering presence in that scene. It is hard and fast. He's crawling along the tunnel, trying to find his way, finds the ring, puts it in his pocket, stops, doesn't then think about the ring anymore. This is what we find, though, as he does finally confront his situation. Now, certainly Bilbo was, excuse me, now certainly Bilbo was in what is called a tight place. But you must remember, it was not quite so tight for him as it would have been for, you, for me or you. Hobbits are not quite like ordinary people. And after all, if their holes are nice, cheery places and properly aired, quite different from the tunnels of the goblins, still they are more used to tunneling than we are, and they do not easily lose their sense of direction underground, not when their heads have recovered from being bumped. Also, they can move very quietly and hide easily and recover wonderfully from falls and bruises, and they have a fund of wisdom and wise sayings that men have mostly never heard or have, long for, or have forgotten long ago. So here's my question. What is happening in this paragraph? Why are we calling a timeout on our story and reframing hobbits? Why now, of all places? The shift here that I find most interesting comes from what I believe is an impulse to reassure the reader. And I can't, I can't think of this. I can't read this without thinking, of course, of Peter Falk in The Princess Bride. This is the moment where, where the grandfather who is telling this story is reassuring the, the wide-eyed reader of the story, I guess, the, the audience of the story, that Bilbo does not get lost under the Misty Mountains at this time. Here we get some reassurance. Hobbits are not quite like ordinary people. And that, by the way, is a dead giveaway that this was not written by Bilbo. Bilbo would consider himself the most ordinary person of all hobbits. All hobbits are the most ordinary people. This is coming from somewhere else. This is coming from a much more modern impulse, I think. After all, their holes are nice, cheery places and properly aired quite different from the tunnels of the goblins. So they're used to being underground. And yes, okay, it's not like the goblin tunnels, but they're fine. They have a good sense of direction. Their heads have His head is recovered from being bumped. Also, they can move very quietly. Okay, I can see how that's applicable. And hide easily. Also applicable. Recover wonderfully from falls and bruises. I mean, okay, sure, that, that has some bearing on the situation. And they have a fund of wisdom and wise sayings that men have mostly never heard or have forgotten long ago. Well, oh, okay. 
I mean, good. I'm glad. I'm glad that hobbits have these things. I'm not sure why we're being told this right now. In part, I think it's because we're deliberately, we're purposefully reframing what is happening to Bilbo as a fairy tale. We are pulling this forcibly out of that fantasy tone, that, that fantastical tone, if you like, and we're drawing it closer to a much more traditional fairy, fairy tale story. And by so doing, I think we're reducing the threat. We're reducing the danger that Bilbo is in. We're, we're framing it and we're offering some reassurance to the juvenile reader. That, to me, seems clear, at least. Yes. Robert says, reassure the reader, yes, but also to call to light, perhaps, the awakening of something primal, more tookish, in Hobbits. Yes. Jeremy says, Tolkien trying to reassure the readers, kids, that Bilbo isn't as weak as we might think. Yes, absolutely. Oh, did I miss an R-O-U-S's joke? <laughs> uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, we do actually have a stretch goal over on patreon.com slash storywonk. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash storywonk. There is a milestone goal there that when we hit that goal together, when you guys pledge a sufficient amount of support... I am going to do a deep dive into not just the movie of The Princess Bride, but also the book, a seminar session exactly like this, in fact. Um, I think probably four sessions for the book, possibly six. I love that book. You guys, I could talk about that book a lot. And then at least two for the movie. Um, the Princess Bride is an absolutely bewitching exercise in storytelling. It is... The relatively trite observation, I suppose, is that it is a story about stories, as so many stories are. But it isn't really a story about stories. It's a story about storytellers. It's a story about the battle for stories. It's a story about the stories which encompass and comfort us, and also the stories which allow us to break free of our bonds and, and move through the world with purpose. I really can't wait to talk about that. If you guys would like to hear me talk about that sooner rather than later, then head on over to patreon.com slash storywonk and urge your friends to do the same. Okay, let's keep going because it is five to nine already. We've been here for an hour, you guys, and we haven't even met Gollum, so we should do exactly that. Here is the introduction to Gollum. Deep down here by the dark water lived old Gollum, a small slimy creature. I don't know where he came from, nor who or what he was. He was Gollum, as dark as darkness, except for two big, round, pale eyes in his thin face. He had a little boat, and he rode about quite quietly on the lake, for lake it was, wide and deep and deadly cold. He paddled it with large feet dangling over the side, but never a ripple did he make. Not he. He was looking out of his pale, lamp-like eyes for blind fish, which he grabbed with his long fingers as quick as thinking. He liked meat, too. Goblin, he thought good when he could get it, but he took care they never found him out. He just throttled them from behind, if they ever came down alone anywhere near the edge of the water when he was prowling about. They very seldom did, for they had a feeling that something unpleasant was lurking down there, down at the very roots of the mountain. They had come on the lake when they were tunneling down long ago, and they found they could go no further. So there their road ended in that direction, and there was no reason to go that way, unless the great goblin sent them. Sometimes he took a fancy for fish from the lake, and sometimes neither goblin nor fish came back. This is truly beautiful, I think. I, I would argue that this is a genuinely great character introduction, not just because it is 
wonderfully composed, not just because it is, as is so often the case with Tolkien, beautifully written in, in, a, in, in a mechanical sense. It is a, a wonderful exercise in literary craft, but narratively speaking, it does something profoundly interesting, which is to focus our sympathies, to reorient our perspective and bring it into alignment with the goblins. We are encouraged through this passage to see Gollum as the goblins see Gollum. And that is a subtle and disquieting thing. Because we know the goblins, we've met the goblins, but here we're daisy-chaining our experience. We're using the exposition that we've already been given and we're putting it to work again in order to get more exposition, in order to introduce this new powerful character. Powerful, narratively speaking, perhaps more than, than physically or in any other sense, but this, this significant character, I suppose I should say. We get an unshakable sense of how dangerous Gollum is, of how otherworldly Gollum is, of how ethereal Gollum is, and how connected to his world he is. This small, cold, bitter, lonely world here at the roots of the mountain. And... Well, there is a possible ambiguity in this passage, which will return to haunt us when we get to the Mines of Moria, the aforementioned Mines of Moria in The Lord of the Rings, because of course the goblins have a sense that there is something terrible down here at the roots of the mountain, and that terrible thing may not just be Gollum, because we will learn later that there are terrible, nameless things deep beneath the earth. Let's move on to our first... Um, to our first interaction here. Um, Sarah is calling it a night. Sarah, I do not blame you at all. It is late where Sarah is and Sarah is going off to bed. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. <laughs> yes, and Kate says here on Twitter, one of the things I, I like about Tolkien is that there is always something darker the deeper you go. Yes, there absolutely is. And this is a, a perfect example of that in action. Yes. Yes, and Jeremy says it, it definitely separates Gollum as a unique creature, which is really true, but that is also a product, more or less, of this second revision to, to chapter 5. Originally, there is a line about Gollum playing the riddle game with creatures who live beneath the mountains, and that's his memory. He, he has a memory of playing the riddle game. He is still alone, but the first version of Gollum is nothing like as pitiable or as wretched as this version of Gollum. When Tolkien revised the chapter, he made two changes. The first is to make Gollum much more wicked, much more evil, much more vicious, but the other is to make him so much more pitiable and lonely. And that, of course, is the crux of, of Gollum as a character as we move forward. So this is our first interaction here. This is the moment where everything changes and Bilbo meets Gollum. Bless us and splash us, my precious. I guess it's a choice feast, at least a tasty morsel that'd make us Gollum. And when he said Gollum, he made a horrible swallowing noise in his throat. That's how he got his name, though he always called himself my precious. The hobbit jumped nearly out of his skin when the hiss came in his ears, and he suddenly saw the pale eyes sticking out at him. Who are you? he said, thrusting his dagger in front of him. What is he, my precious? whispered Gollum, who always spoke to himself, though never, excuse me, who always spoke to himself through never having anyone else to speak to. This is what he had come to find out, for he was not really very hungry at the moment, only curious. Otherwise, he would have grabbed first and whispered afterwards. 
I am Mr. Bilbo Baggins. I have lost the dwarves and I have lost the wizard and I don't know where I am and I don't want to know. If only I can get away. Here we see another conflict between the wild and the civil. Here Bilbo is deep beneath the earth, but takes the time to introduce himself with his formal name. I am Mr. Bilbo Baggins. I have lost the dwarves and I have lost the wizard and I don't know where I am. And no greater statement of, of wretched hopelessness and loneliness has ever been made. I have lost the dwarves and I have lost the wizard and I don't know where I am. You'll note here, in fact, a few of you are, are calling out here that there are a couple of interesting things to observe. We're told in the first paragraph, that is how he got his name, though he always called himself my precious. Did he always call himself my precious? Is that who Gollum is talking to? Is that what we are supposed to believe in this chapter? Is that what Bilbo believes in this chapter? Is this a remnant of an earlier version of, of Bilbo's story or of the story? Or is this, is this deliberate? Is this purposeful? Are we once more aligning ourselves with the goblin's perspective on Gollum? And thus, we remain unaware of the ring. All the goblins know is that when you hear the whisper, he refers to himself as my precious, or seems to refer to himself as my precious. Yes. Good. Stephanie says, I kind of figure Bilbo is just too naive to think it might not be a good idea to give his name. I like that rather a lot. Yes. It doesn't matter to Bilbo. Here is a monster. I will give it my name because nothing could possibly happen. Yes. Good. And Tyler says, a hobbit must always have their manners. Yes. Sam says, does Bilbo himself ever learn the full story of Gollum? Hmm. Well, arguably he must at least in part because he transcribes part of that story for the Red Book. Hmm. I would imagine so. If I had to guess, if nothing else, I'm sure it happened while Frodo and the others are at Rivendell in the Fellowship of the Ring. I'm sure there's this ample opportunity there for stories to be told, particularly for Gandalf to finally tell the truth to Bilbo, though perhaps the, the influence of the Ring is still too fresh. I'm not sure. Hmm. That, that's, that's a good observation. I'm not sure that's true. Yes. Yes. Okay. Let's move on. We're going to race through the... Um, yes. Good. Uh, we're going to race through the uh, the riddles themselves here because the riddles themselves are, I mean, wonderful. I, I adore them. I hope that if you haven't read this book before, you are playing along with the riddle game. There are two of them that I would call out as being particularly unfair in that regard, but but the rest of them I think you can make a pretty decent stab at. The rest of them are are accessible at least. What I find most interesting about the riddle game, though, is what the riddles tell us about the characters who, who ask them. So let's take a look at these first two. We get here the first of Gollum's riddles and then the first of Bilbo's in response. So Gollum asks, what has roots as nobody sees is taller than trees, up, up it goes and yet never grows. It should come as no surprise that the first thought that Gollum has is the mountain, is the mountain itself that this is where he lives, that this is his essence in part. He is defined as much by the mountain as he is by the darkness, which we'll get to, or the fish, which we'll get to. The mountain is, the mountain and, and specifically the absence of mountain here in this little subterranean grotto, that is, in part at least, what Gollum is. 
Bilbo responds with a completely prosaic riddle. If you have heard any of the riddles before, you have almost certainly heard this riddle before, or a, a version of this riddle. Tolkien did actually write all of the riddles himself. These are all original, though they are oftentimes drawn from older riddles. 30 white horses on a red hill. First they champ, then they stamp, then they stand still. This is, of course, the teeth riddle. The question here is what Bilbo is thinking about. Is he thinking about eating or is he thinking about being eaten? I'm fairly comfortable that it's the former. Yes. Oh, uh, Jay Oliveira asks, am I the only one who didn't solve the riddles in the first 10 minutes or so? You are not, let me assure you. And Megan says, as a 10-year-old, I puzzled over the riddles for what felt like hours with a sheet of paper over the answers. Megan, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Jeremy says, I am terrible at riddles. I am also terrible at riddles. I tend to overthink riddles because it turns out there are 30 things that could apply to this particularly cryptic discussion. Actually, what I think the problem is, is that riddles are so much harder than they seem to be. Creating something that is sufficiently cryptic and yet sufficiently specific, that is a difficult challenge. But yes, I'm, I'm not as good at riddles as I, as I wish I was. Chesley says, 12-year-old me gave up. Yes. <laughs> And Carl says, the teeth one I remember from a kid's riddle book I had as a kid. Yes, though a lot of us, um, unless you are of, of particularly venerable age, a lot of us are, of course, reading riddles that have come from this book, that this riddle was adopted by the mainstream, that, that it became a part of pop culture after its appearance in this book rather than prior. All of these were, at the time, at least original. Yes. Good. Good. Okay. Oh, and Daphne has joined us this evening. Glad to have you with us, Daphne. Running a little late, but that's all right. You showed up just in time for the good part. Let's take a look at the next two riddles, because this to me is where it gets interesting. So we have the mountain first and then teeth. These are fairly commonplace riddles. These are fairly standard riddles. They certainly speak to our characters, yes, but in ways which are not terribly surprising, honestly. Here, we get a very interesting riddle from Gollum. Voiceless, it cries, wingless, flutters, toothless, bites, mouthless, mutters. This is the wind poem, or the wind riddle, excuse me. And, and what is most interesting about this is that we may be surprised in the first instance that Gollum would think of something that is probably not a huge part of his daily experience here beneath the mountain. And that's Absolutely fair criticism, I think. One of the things that I find most interesting about it, though, is that it is framed absolutely in terms of what the wind isn't and what the wind cannot and what the wind struggles to. This is pitiable. This is pathetic in the truest sense. Voiceless, it cries. Wingless, flutters. Toothless, bites. Mouthless, mutters. The wind cannot accomplish what it is seeking to accomplish. It is a wretched, fragment, disembodied thing. Bilbo replies to that with what is perhaps the most perfect thematically opposite riddle that he could possibly come up with. Though this is one of those that if you don't know the answer and you're not grounded in Anglo-Saxon, then you have very little hope of guessing exactly what is happening here. An eye in a blue face saw an eye in a green face. That eye is like to this eye, said the first eye, but in low place, not in high place. 
This riddle, deciphering this riddle, is entirely dependent upon, I guess not a pun exactly, but but a reference, a piece of, of naming in Anglo-Saxon. In Anglo-Saxon, the, the name Daisy, which is the, the, the eye in the green face, the little flower here that is being referenced, Daisy stands for or, or, or was adapted from Day's eye. It was always represented as, as being like unto the sun. There are connections throughout, you know, the naming of, of flowers between the sun and the flowers themselves. The daisy is perhaps the most literal of those things. So that idea of the opposition of the sun in the high place and the daisy in the low place being like each other is completely commonplace if you happen to know the etymological history of the name daisy. If you don't, then good luck. But what happens once you understand this riddle is that you begin to see a hint of Bilbo's worldview, I think. There is, there is a sense here of his philosophy, of his theology, even in part his cosmology. When we're talking about the wind, when Gollum tells us about the wind, voiceless it cries, wingless, toothless, mouthless, it's about all the things that the wind cannot do, and the wind itself is not embodied. The wind itself, we are, we are told about it but it does not take direct action in the course of, of the riddle. Here, not only does the sun take direct action, but we get attributed dialogue. The sun itself, you know, to medievalists, the center of the universe, the sun speaks. It, it, it takes direct action within the riddle. An eye in a blue face saw, the eye, saw an eye in a green face. That eye is like to this eye, said the first eye, but in low place, not in high place. So the sun is shining radiantly down upon the meadow, and the sun sees the daisy and says, hey, that thing is like me, except in low place and not in high place. This can be interpreted possibly as an example of the kind of, of monarchistic condescension that we've discussed before in the frame of this seminar. I think that it is possible to see this as being somewhat representative of what a good ruler, uh, uh, a beneficent ruler should be. He looks down from above. He is above. He is great and grand, and that's just the way things are. But he looks down and he sees something like himself. And he says, hey, that thing is like me, except in low place, not in high place. Furthermore, though, what this represents to me is a unity. When Bilbo draws that line, that, that direct interaction between the sun and the daisy, he's connecting both the high and the low. He's connecting the heavens and the earth in a very literal sense. He's creating the grandest parts of creation with the most mundane and prosaic parts of creation. And that speaks, I think, to Bilbo's sense of an ordered and unified world. And when we contrast that with what Gollum has to say about the wind, that, that it is wordless and wingless and toothless and mouthless, that it is incomplete, fundamentally incomplete, we see a slightly different perspective, a, a, slight, a slight fracture there along the, the, the lines of perception, if you will. Okay, let's take a look at the next two. I generally think these get better as we go, actually. I think each set is, is better. Because in response to the sun on the daisy, Gollum gives us what is, I think, hmm, 
And to be careful making these declarative statements. What is, I think, the most interesting riddle? This, I think, is the most interesting riddle in the set. Because having been presented with this notion that the entire universe is unified, that there is a, uh, a holistic sense to all of creation, we get this from Gollum. It cannot be seen, cannot be felt, cannot be heard, cannot be smelt. It lies, it lies behind stars and under hills and empty holes it fills. It comes first and follows after, ends life, kills laughter. This is the darkness poem. He's referring to darkness, absence, emptiness. He is referring to nothingness, which in a very obvious and fundamental way opposes everything that Bilbo was just describing. Bilbo is describing this, this world of light and life and unity, and Gollum responds with the antithesis of that. But we must note that Gollum goes further. Gollum doesn't just reject Bilbo's idea. He, in a way, integrates Bilbo's idea. He wraps his riddle, his, his theology, his cosmology, his philosophy around Bilbo's and makes it seem smaller, makes it seem less significant. It lies behind stars and under hills and empty holes it fills. It comes first and follows after, ends life kills laughter. Here we see that the, the daisy in the meadow with the sun beating down is encapsulated within a greater darkness. That to Gollum, the dark is the natural resting state of the universe. That these moments of life and of light, well, the dark is above and below and before and after. There is no escaping Gollum's existence. Bilbo's is the aberration, not Gollum's. Bilbo then responds, shaken somewhat, with a riddle that he himself does not care for, a box without hinges, key or lid, yet golden treasure inside is hid. Once again, Bilbo's thoughts return to his kitchen back at Bag and This is the egg riddle. And it's an interesting counterpoint. There is, I think, an analysis that can be done here that speaks to life and speaks to, to propagation and speaks to continuation and speaks to reproduction. I think that we can interpret it partly in that way, but we can also speak to the comforts of home and hearth and food and breakfast in particular and second breakfast even more so. Golem responds to that with another fairly simple riddle that speaks to his experience once more. This is his uh, counterpoint, I suppose, to the, egg, uh, to the egg. When Bilbo is home in Bag End, putting his feet up on the hearth and eating his boiled egg, we get this from Gollum. Alive without breath, as cold as death, never thirsty, ever drinking, all in mail, never clinking. The fish riddle actively subverts our expectations. It actively challenges Bilbo's take on life and warmth and vitality and even food. It is a parody of those things. The way that the fish is depicted here is in absolute contrast to 
health and warmth and comfort and light, alive without breath, as cold as death, never thirsty, ever drinking, all in mail, never clinking. That the fish is again an aberration, that the fish is again unnatural, at least in this narrow perspective here. Inspired by Gollum's poem, and again, we're seeing here the battle, I think. The reason that I'm, I'm delving into this depth is that what we see within the riddle game is a clash of philosophy. What we see here is a clash of perspective, that Bilbo is all light and warmth and home and hearth, and Gollum is all cold and dark beneath the mountain. Which makes Bilbo's final riddle all the harder, I think, for, for Gollum to guess. No legs, lay on one leg, two legs, sat near on three legs, four legs, got some. I will say that this to me is not a good riddle. <laughs> this to me is, is all but indecipherable. I don't think I've ever met anyone, and by all means, shout out in the YouTube chat. I promise that I will believe you. I don't know of anyone who has ever guessed this riddle successfully. This seems so arcane with so many possible answers that it doesn't satisfy me in the way that the other riddles do. But when we get past that, what we see is this happy domestic scene. For those of you who have not uh, read the answer to this riddle or, or inexplicably have forgotten the answer to this riddle, the answer to this riddle is a man sitting on a stool eating a fish and giving some to his cat. The no legs is the fish, the one leg is the table, two legs is the man, three legs is his stool, four legs is his cat. And yes, I don't know how you work backward from that unless you have some kind of flowchart or, or diagram. But thematically, it absolutely works. Because what Bilbo manages to do is to take Gollum's unnatural, otherworldly fish, his, his dead, silent fish, and move it into the most bucolic and, and pastoral scene here, this most domestic and, and heartwarming scene. You can sense the, the domesticity permeating this, this little glimpse of civilization that Bilbo gives us. The man is sitting at his table. These are the trappings of culture and of civilization and of peace and of dignity. He's sitting at his table. He's enjoying his fish. He's feeding his cat an act of kindness, an act in part of condescension. This is what life is all about for Bilbo. This is about as good as it gets. Throw in a pipe and some tobacco right there at the end and you're done. But that only angers Gollum still further. This is Gollum's last riddle. This thing all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal, slays king, ruins town, and beats high mountain down. That in the end, all things are destroyed by time. In the end, this little bubble of, of domestic bliss that Bilbo has created will falter, will be destroyed, because nothing lasts. Interestingly, not even the mountain, which is where Gollum started his riddle game. He is 
in a sense, including himself in this slow grinding toward the end of time. He is not excluding himself from that, though from the perspective of the Lord of the Rings, there may be reasons why he would exclude himself from that. But right here in the here and the now, he is he is so completely responding to Bilbo's depiction of domestic tranquility with, with all that he has, all that his, his dark imagination can summon. And in so doing, he is destroying himself. This is, I think, a very minor example of that same impulse to evil that we observed before with the trolls. And as I said at the time, we are going to see this again and again and again and again throughout the pages of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Evil is destroyed by itself. Evil is destroyed by those things which make it evil. That I think, in, in a very small way, and obviously in a metaphorical way here, because this is still just a riddle, but in his anger, in his desire to get to Bilbo, Gollum is inadvertently, metaphorically, symbolically, destroying himself too. And that takes us to what's in my pockets. That takes us to the final riddle and what becomes for Bilbo another turning point in his career, a minor turning point. And we'll talk a little right at the end of tonight's session about where these, these turning points can be found. Let me scroll back through and see what you guys thought of the, uh, see what you guys thought of the, uh, the, the riddles here. Uh, Victoria says, perhaps Tolkien forgot to tell us that hobbits are particularly good at mental flowcharts as well. I could imagine that. I'm sure there are a lot of very talented CPAs uh, working in, in the Shire. Good. Oh, and Kate Matt makes a note. Yes, absolutely. Daisy as the day's eye makes sense because they close at night. Yes, that was one of the things that connects the daisy to, to the sun. Yes. Good. Um, hmm. We're posting in the Discord chat pictures of our, our computers, our, our laptops, currently occupied by kittens, which is adorable. Yes. Uh, Lorna Jane is struggling with, with a very fluffy cat sitting on her computer right now. Yes. Um, let's see here. Yes, Jackie says, <laughs> this really isn't a fair riddle. But then again, getting eaten for losing the riddle game isn't, isn't really either. Yes. Jeremy says, stupid Trixie Hobbit, we eats it. Yes. And Elizabeth says, what's in my pocket is such an anticlimactic end to the, riddle, to the battle of riddles. Not a riddle, y'all. Feels lazy or at least cheap. Fair. Absolutely fair. I think we would argue that this is the subversion of the riddle game, that the riddle game itself has come to an end. Um, yes, you're right, I guess. What's in my pocket? Not a riddle. Absolutely not. Um, yes. Though Mariana points out we learned so much about Gollum from this riddle exchange. Yes, because we must remember that originally Gollum was actually convinced by what's in my pocket that this exchange plays out largely with some minor editing as it does in the revised version. And Gollum was so satisfied that he returned to his little island to get the ring to give to Bilbo. That was how it was going to go down. And only when he returns to his island and finds that the ring is inexplicably gone, because he lost it earlier in the tunnel where Bilbo found it, he is distraught. He is overcome. He shrieks and he wails. And he returns to Bilbo and said, I was going to give you a present and now I can't give you a present. I'm breaking the rules of the riddle game and this is the worst thing that could ever happen. And Bilbo says, well, hey, don't worry about a present. How about you just show me out? How about that? Can we do that? That would be fine, actually. The gift you can give me is getting me out from under this damn mountain. And Gollum does so. He takes him to the door. They wave farewell. Bilbo goes off on his way. So even in the original version, Gollum was 
was bound by the, the, the rules of the riddle game. But when Tolkien came to revise it, he did his classic Tolkien thing, which is he left it largely intact. He made a couple of tiny little changes that completely invert the meaning of the, uh, the meaning of the passage, the meaning of the chapter as a whole. He manages to change everything by changing very, very little. There is an enormous care and acuity that goes into that kind of revision. But yes, as riddles go, I'm afraid we have to go to the impartial judge, and he says, no, Bilbo. He says, that's bad. No riddle for you. Good. Yes, yes. Sarah's pointing out here in the YouTube chat that, that while it isn't a good riddle, it is the question. It is the central question which anchors this entire chapter and informs the rest of the book and then will ultimately anchor the entire Lord of the Rings. This is a very important question. But in this moment, it isn't a part of the riddle game. Yes. Or isn't, isn't a, a fair or well-constructed part of the riddle game, I should say. Good. Good. Are we speculating whether or not Bilbo is Slytherin? Is that what we're doing here in the YouTube chat? I'm going to need someone to. <laughs> Jeremy says, but cheating Hobbit cleverness, is Bilbo a Slytherin here? Hmm. That's interesting. Drink, I guess. Okay, let's keep going because it is, wow, I'm almost at time and I still have, uh, okay, actually I only have a few more slides. Let's push on to Bilbo. Um. Well, let, let's, I'll, I'll read the slide first, and then we can talk about the ways in which this is perhaps the turning point that was referenced earlier. Bilbo almost stopped breathing and went stiff himself. He was desperate. He must get away out of this horrible darkness while he had any strength left. He must fight. He must stab the foul thing, put its eyes out, kill it. It meant to kill him. No, not a fair fight. He was invisible now. Gollum had no sword. Gollum had not actually threatened to kill him or tried to yet, and he was miserable, alone, lost. A sudden understanding, a pity mixed with horror welled up in Bilbo's heart, a glimpse of endless unmarked days without light or hope of betterment, hard stone, cold fish, sneaking and whispering. All these thoughts passed in the flash of a second. He trembled. And then quite suddenly, in another flash, as if lifted by a new strength and resolve, he leapt. No great leap for a man, but a leap in the dark. Straight over Gollum's head he jumped seven feet forward and three in the air. Indeed, had he known it, he only just missed cracking his skull on the low arch of the passage. This will be an incredibly significant moment by the time that we get into the Lord of the Rings. This moment will be referenced again and again. This is the moment of Bilbo's mercy. He has here within his power the complete and trivial capability to kill Gollum. He can murder Gollum without giving it a thought. But instead, he has this moment of empathy. He has this moment of connection, of recognition. Bilbo, as the sun, is looking down to the low place and saying, hey, that guy's like me, but in low place, not high place. Bilbo is demonstrating a genuine heroism here. And this is one of those moments that, as exaggerated and as fairy tale as the Hobbit can be, this is one of those moments that never fails to genuinely touch me. And 
Well, we'll we'll talk right at the end of the session about Bilbo's turning point. Is there a turning point within this chapter? And if so, what is it? Because I think there are a few potential candidates depending on your interpretation. Um, so so think on that as we as we move toward our conclusion here. Yes. Mm. Yes. Um, yes, we're, we're referencing, J. Oliveira here is referencing when, when Gandalf tells Frodo not to say that he wants to kill Gollum. Yes, we will. Yes, good, good. And Sarah says, I think he's feeling the ring. Yes, possibly. Uh, we have within the bounds of this text absolutely no reason to speculate that that might be the case. But when we look at it, it sure feels like something may be having an undue influence over Bilbo, doesn't it? Though even then, if that is true, then the fact that Bilbo manages to vanquish it, the fact that his light outshines the darkness, is all the more impressive. It is easy to see Bilbo throughout The Hobbit and, and throughout The Lord of the Rings too, to see Bilbo as a protagonist more than a hero, to see him as a fairly bumbling, fairly ineffectual, fairly good-natured and likable character who is still just a hobbit, and perhaps there is more of the grocer than the burglar about him. But this is one of the moments, and we will get more. This is the first of the moments, I would argue. Though, though even then, you might say that Bilbo has had two moments already. The first is with the trolls, and the second is his cry of alarm as the goblins capture the dwarven party. So this is perhaps to... to borrow a, uh, to paraphrase at least a quote that we were discussing last week, this could be considered Bilbo's first successful adventure. But what stands out to me is the empathy. What stands out to me is the, is the ability to connect and to recognize and to empathize and to then show mercy. This is, unusually for a hobbit, the act of a great person, capital G, great. This is the act. This is a kingly act, we might argue. And that's exceptional. Obviously, we're going to have an opportunity to talk a lot more about mercy and the lack of mercy toward Gollum by the time we get to the end of it. Um, yes, so what I want to look at here, just before we wrap up, Nikki's saying empathy, what separates good from evil. Yes, yes. Indeed, that, that goes a long way. Empathy recognizes, empathy is dependent upon a sense of kinship, that sense that, that you and I, we are alike. I can understand you because fundamentally we are alike. And empathy requires that and rewards that. And that kind of interconnectedness, absolutely within the pages of Tolkien, a great virtue and, and one of the greatest things that, that can be said of a person. Yes. Um, and Jeremy observes mercy values equals Tolkien's religious beliefs. Absolutely, yes. I think that that <laughs> for those of us who have studied the the fiction of C.S. Lewis, um, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings may not seem to be particularly religious texts. They certainly are not allegorical in the way that the Narnia books, in particular, are allegorical. But that does not mean that they are not completely suffused with Tolkien's faith, with his understanding of how the world works, of how the universe works, not in its specifics. There's, there's, again, I want to hesitate before I make a broadly declarative statement. Hey, you guys, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that there's no 
dogma. There's no Catholic dogma within the pages of either The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. It is one of those minor details that is often observed that there is no church or chapel or temple or place of prayer anywhere in Middle-earth. They don't exist. I mean, you can stretch and you can speculate. If you're willing to go far enough, you can create, okay, well, maybe from a certain perspective, this kind of performs the same function, but there are no churches in Middle-earth. There is no apparent organized religion or really religion of any type in Middle-earth. It doesn't seem to operate on the same rules, but that does not stand against Tolkien's own profound and significant and important faith. Rather, it speaks to the, the effective cause of that faith. He's, he's talking about the underlying theology more than he's talking about the manifestation of that theology. So, yes, good. Uh, Jackie says, there's a place of worship on Numenor. Yes, but certainly within, within The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Yes, good. Um, oh, we're asking about uh, Aragorn too. Good. Yes, yes. Yes, and Lauren says, I was saying at the beginning, this seems also particularly Catholic, not just Christian, just something I can't unsee. And I think that that's, hmm. I think, again, we're, we're, we're falling into this, this division between applicability, applicability excuse me, and allegory. I don't think that Tolkien intended this as an allegory. I don't think that he is seeking to retell, you know, the story of his particular faith. But at the same time, he's allowing that faith to inform his understanding of this secondary creation and thus it is evident within that secondary world. Thus it is consistent with that faith. So yes, I, I do think it behooves us here to, to pay close attention to cause and effect in that regard, to, to, to differentiate between, hmm, between intent and applicability, between the, the intentional and the unintentional act, I suppose. Um, but yes, I mean, it would be, naive at, at best to say that Tolkien is not, you know, or, or to say that these books are not informed by Tolkien's faith. That's, yes. Good. Um, yes. Uh, okay, we're, we're, we're discussing some of the, uh, we're discussing some of the consequences of the ring, which we will get to, I promise, I swear, in, in due course. Um, we're not quite there yet, you guys. We're not quite there yet. There's still time. Okay, let's wrap up. Oh, I wanted to talk about uh, I wanted to talk about this because this I thought was fascinating. This is Bilbo running into the goblins here as he is trying to leave the Misty Mountains. Bilbo blinked, and then suddenly he saw the goblins, goblins in full armor with drawn swords sitting just inside the door and watching it with wide eyes and watching the passage that led to it. They were aroused, alert, ready for anything. They saw him sooner than he saw them. Yes, they saw him. Whether it was an accident or a last trick of the ring before it took a new master, it was not on his finger. With yells of delight, the goblins rushed upon him. A pang of fear and loss like an echo of Gollum's misery smote Bilbo. And forgetting even to draw his sword, he stuck his hands into his pockets, and there was the ring still in his left pocket, and it slipped on his finger. The goblins stopped short. They could not see a sign of him. He had vanished. They yelled twice as loud as before, but not so delightedly. Whether it was an accident or a last trick of the ring before it took a new master, it was not on his finger. What I'm going to do now is move on to the next slide to show you, by contrast, how that scene played out 
in the original version and then in the revised version. So in the first edition, in the first five editions of The Hobbit and everything prior to the revision, this is how the scene played out. Whether it was accident or presence of mind, I don't know. Accident, I think, because The Hobbit was not used yet to his new treasure. Anyway, he slipped the ring on his left hand and the goblins stopped short. They could not see a sign of him. Then they yelled twice as loud as before, but not so delightedly. This is a completely perfunctory version. The goblins see Bilbo. Bilbo says, oh, wait, I've got that ring of invisibility. I should put that on. He does so. He disappears. Everyone lives happily ever after. Well, probably not the goblins. Bilbo lives happily ever after. But in the revised edition, we do two incredibly powerful things. The first is to credit the ring with a sense of agency and purpose. It is the last trick of the ring before it took a new master. This is the ring playing with Bilbo, taunting Bilbo, arguably. But then much more importantly, because Gollum is now a pitiable creature, because Bilbo has now felt that empathy, has stayed his own hand through mercy, we get this last moment of recognition between the two. A pang of fear and loss, like an echo of Gollum's misery, smote Bilbo. And forgetting even to draw his sword, he stuck his hands into his pockets. A pang of fear and loss like an echo of Gollum's misery. What is it that Bilbo was feeling? Is it fear as the goblins rush toward him? Or is it, as I rather suspect, angst that he has lost the ring? That the ring is already weighing on him? That there is already some kind of malign influence being exerted over him? The combination of Bilbo's mercy and misery is profound to me. I absolutely love the way that the two things are contrasted as we move through toward the end of the chapter. And to move through toward the end of the chapter, we must, because I absolutely cannot run any longer than I am currently running. Let's move on to the very end of the chapter. And I want to talk here. I guess you can shout out in the YouTube chat, shout out on Discord, shout out on Twitter about your thoughts about... Um, about Bilbo's change here, is there a turning point? If we acknowledge that this is the first major turning point in Bilbo's adventure, what is the nature of the transition? How does he change? And at what moment precisely does the change occur? Is it the finding of the ring? Is it cheating, if cheating indeed it was, at the riddle game? Is it showing mercy to Gollum? Is it putting on the ring when he is being charged by goblins? Or is it this, the final moment? It was still ajar, but a goblin had pushed it nearly too. Bilbo struggled, but he could not move it. He tried to squeeze through the crack. He squeezed and squeezed, and he stuck. It was awful. His buttons had got wedged on the edge of the door and the doorpost. He could see outside into the open air. There were a few steps running down a narrow valley between tall mountains. The sun came out from behind a cloud and shone bright on the outside of the door, but he could not get through. Suddenly, one of the goblins inside shouted, There's a shadow by the door! Something is outside! Bilbo's heart jumped into his mouth. He gave a terrific squirm. Buttons burst off in all directions. He was through with a torn coat and waistcoat, leaping down the steps like a goat, while bewildered goblins were still picking up his nice brass buttons on the doorstep. First, we should note the contrast, the metaphor made manifest in this slide. We have the indoor and the outdoor, of course. We have the dark and the light. We have incarceration or 
worse and freedom. We have goblins representing the wild and the purer wild beyond. The Misty Mountains themselves within the course of this novel, and again when we get to the Lord of the Rings, will form a threshold all their own. The Misty Mountains are the breaking point between the civil and the safe and the wild beyond. We are going to spend the next, let's call it three weeks, talking a lot about the wild as we move forward. But here, Tolkien transforms the metaphorical threshold into a literal threshold. With the bursting of the buttons as he is caught in the door, we are seeing Bilbo cross that threshold. We're seeing him pass this point of transition. We're seeing him, I think, lose some of his Baggins-ish nature. He has paid the first price for adventure, and he has paid it in buttons. But of course, metaphorically, he has paid it in civility and comfort and ease and the trappings of his Baggins-ish life. That is the end of this chapter. Let me show this first before I wrap up. Next week, The Hobbit 6, Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire, a genuinely great chapter with a lot to discuss. That's 9 p.m. Eastern next Thursday, February the 16th, 2017. Can you believe it? Let's take a look then and see what everyone has said. Does that cancel that? Good. Hmm. Oh, Nicole asks a fascinating question. Is this a reference to fairies having to count things, or is that vampires? That is traditionally vampires, but vampires and fairies kind of stem from a shared source, at least in part. They both have a, a folktale history. I had never thought that the goblins might be compulsively collecting the brass buttons. Um... I think either that the brass buttons are odd or appear to be something similar to money, if the goblins have any sense. I guess the goblins would have a sense of what money is, even if they don't necessarily use it freely themselves. That's a fascinating point, though. Good. Good. Becca says, I think it becomes Bilbo and the ring versus the goblins. The ring wants out as badly as Bilbo, which is a very interesting point of speculation. You can spend a lot of time speculating about the ring's intent and what it means to accomplish. Megan says, I think mercy to Gollum isn't a change. He would always have been merciful, but leaving behind his beautiful brass buttons, maybe this is a change on the outside to signify his change on the inside. I love that, Megan. Yes. And Jackie says, it's almost comical, but this is a seriously close call. It is a seriously close call. This is one of the most successful integrations for me personally of the adventure fantasy story and the somewhat more lighthearted juvenile fairy story. I think that in this moment, it really works beautifully. And it combines, as I said, the metaphor of the threshold, this liminal state in which Bilbo is literally trapped. Guys, he's literally trapped in a liminal state. How perfect is that? And then freed with the, the sundering, with the rendering of his Baggins-ish, uh, his Baggins-ish ways. It, it's perfect, it's balanced, it's beautiful, and yet it is no less immediate for that. It is still an action set piece. And as you can tell, I love it quite a lot. Um, good. All right. It is very late. I have kept you already far longer than I intended to. So I am going to wrap it up here. As I said, next week, The Hobbit, Chapter 6, Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire, we're going to have an opportunity to discuss the first major instance of catastrophe that we see in the pages of The Hobbit. And one of the most striking moments of catastrophe in all of Tolkien's Legendarium. 
There's there's a lot going on in that chapter. We will have a great opportunity to discuss it all next week. Thank you all so much for joining me this week. I really appreciate it. As ever, you can find me either, either on the StoryWonk forums at forum.storywonk.com. You can email me directly, alistair at storywonk.com. That's A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R at storywonk.com. Or you can find me on Twitter. Just use the hashtag back again. I will see your thoughts right there. You can find me on Discord. Guys, I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere on the internet. Just just send out a messenger pigeon and it will probably find its way to me here in Oklahoma City. I am so grateful to have you all here. Thank you so much. And as I said, head on over to patreon.com slash storywonk, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, where you can pledge your support right now to help make the Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban session happen and then ultimately the Princess Bride session to... I love doing this, you guys, with your support. I will continue to do this as often as I am able. Thanks so much for being here this evening. I will talk to you all next week. Have a great week in the meantime. Take care.